Thank you very much to Tanya and Fred and Christopher for playing the music and for John leading this morning. We weren't going to say anything, but um, wheels came off the wagon a little bit. Uh, During our rehearsal this morning, we realized that we had one of the wrong songs up there, and we were scrambling to get another one to replace it, which we did. Uh, But the Lord has a way of working. Uh, I was not expecting to spend a week in Haywood, and it was a great week to spend with Cameron. Uh, Heather and Jono planned to be here until 3 o'clock in the morning when she got up to take him to the hospital, and things just don't always work out the way that you think they should work out. But singing that song, Blessed Assurance and Perfect Submission, my heart just leapt because it's something I want to talk about this morning with submission and the way it ties together. And this week in the Bible study, if you've got your little green sheet there in front of you, you look on the back side, you'll see we're studying Psalm 23. So the song we were going to sing this morning is Psalm 23. We'll sing it next week, and it'll tie in well with that. So the Lord just works things out the way he intends. And that's the marvelous thing about believing and trusting and walking with a God who is absolutely sovereign over all things. He knows what's best. Take your Bibles, please, and look at the book of Acts, chapter 20. Acts 20, and we're going to read in a few moments from verse 17 all the way down to verse number 38. Just to give you the background, the context, in uh, Acts 20, verses 1 to 6, Paul has left Ephesus, and he spent three months encouraging and exhorting the churches in Macedonia and Greece, and then they've traveled and come to Troas. And in verses 7 to 12, Paul and company spend seven days in Troas, finishing with an all-night worship service in which one uh, sleepy believer is raised to life at the end. And then in uh, verses 13 to 16, Paul travels from Troas to Miletus, where he calls for the Ephesian elders to come together, and there he gives them his farewell address. And so we're going to read from verse 17 to verse 38, and I invite you again this morning to give attention to the words of the one living and true God. He says, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves for all and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers 
to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to the God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and bring you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they should see his face no more. And they were accompanying him to the ship. We trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word. Loving Father, this morning we would just cry out to you again, O God, that you would speak through your word. Father, give us ears and hearts and minds to hear what you would say to us. And Father, we cry that the speaker would decrease, but Christ would increase in our view this day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As a total of 26 speeches recorded in the book of Acts. Peter makes eight speeches in chapters 1 to 15. There's Stephen's sermon in chapter 7. There's James' speech to the Jerusalem Council. And Paul himself makes, and they're recorded in the book of Acts, nine speeches. He gives three missionary speeches and five defenses are addressed all to non-Christian listeners. This speech alone in verses 18 to 35 is the only one like it in the whole book of Acts. It's the most epistle-like of Paul's speeches because it's addressed to believers, in particular to the Ephesian elders. Paul's speech is a farewell address speech. The Bible contains several such speeches. There's Joshua's farewell to Israel. There's Jacob's farewell to his 12 sons. There's Samuel's farewell to Israel. Even Jesus' words in the upper room take the form of a farewell address. You say, how do you know that? Well, farewell addresses in Scripture have kind of a typical form. There's the gathering of family of friends. There's the announcement of the speaker's departure or death. There's an appeal or an exhortation to follow the speaker's example. There's predictions of future events and trials and difficulties. But this is not just Paul's sad goodbye to his beloved friends recorded for us to listen and look and and grieve with them. It's God's Holy Spirit communicating a message to us through Paul's words. So what is Paul talking about in his farewell speech? It's very much a loving shepherd's heart revealed as he speaks to these men. It's his reminder of the example he set them in shepherding the church. It's a display of his attitude towards the Lord and when he serves. It's his charge to the elders to watch themselves and watch the church. It's his prediction of coming difficulties and how to prepare for them. It's Paul's desire to see the church continue to grow and thrive, even as he tells them that they will not see his face again. 
The Spirit of God, through Paul's words, is talking about God's shepherds shepherding God's church. So why, why do we need to hear this? I mean, you can say, well, it's just the next text in our progression through Acts, so we'll work our way through it, and that's all it is. No, there's actually some really good reasons why we need to hear this text for today, for our context. For those of us who are recognized elders and shepherds, we need to both be encouraged and challenged regarding the examples that we're setting, our heart attitudes toward the Lord and his church, and our watchfulness over the church that's committed to our care. The church that we have to watch over, the church we have to feed with the rich truths of Scripture. The sheep we have to lead forward in the way of the Lord. The sheep we're called on to protect from the wolves without and sadly the wolves that rise up from within the church. We're called to encourage and help and pray for them. And we need to be challenged as elders as to how we're doing that. How well we're doing that or not. Secondly, for the whole church, we all need to hear this because we we all serve as informal shepherds to those among whom God has placed us. Husbands, we're called to shepherd our wives, our children, our friends, our fellow believers. Wives, you're called to shepherd your husbands, your children, your friends and family and so on. Every Christian is called to shepherd those around them in their sphere of influence shepherding them towards the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and shepherding them through their lives as they walk with the Lord. Everybody has an influence, right? Uh, Someone made a a cute saying uh, some time ago I saw. He said, nobody is a complete waste. You can always be a bad example. (laughs) And that's true, isn't it? But we're all called as believers living in the world we live in, living in our context, whether it's work or family, in our street, on our amongst our neighbors. We're all called and we're there as an influence to those around us. And so we need to be challenged about how we're doing as shepherds, all of us. And so how are we going to approach the text? Well, usually what I try and do is work my way through verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, and just keep kind of working my way down and make sure the sermon kind of follows the flow of the text. Unfortunately, in this case, uh, the way Paul gives his speech, the, the topics are kind of woven together, and he kind of jumps back and forth from different things. And so what I've done is I've gone through and done like a systematic theology approach. Those of you who don't know what that means, it means simply I've combed through the text and gathered the different topics under three basic headings. And in case you're wondering on that, there isn't actually uh, three points at at chapter 2, or sorry, point 2 doesn't have six points and 3 have five points, and and that will take a long time to go through. So this is the first half. The balance will be next week, and you can see where the dividing point is. So... The outline for the next two messages is this. Number one, shepherds set godly examples. Number two, shepherds serve the Lord. Number three, shepherds serve the church. And we're going to unpack a lot under those three headings. So first of all, shepherds set godly examples. God's shepherds shepherd sheep by setting godly examples. And Paul begins by reminding them of his own example while amongst them. In verse 18, he says, You yourselves know how I was with you the whole time. In verse 20, he says, How I did not hesitate to declare anything profitable to you, and a bit beyond that. In verse 35, he says, In everything, listen, I showed you 
by working hard that you must help. I showed you, I set you an example. The Ephesian elders and shepherds have for three plus years seen Paul's example. They know how he behaved amongst them, the manner of his behavior. And Paul considers his example before the Lord to be of sufficient quality to call them to remember it and follow it. And right there, the first challenge hit me between the eyes. What kind of example am I setting? And can I stand up and say, you know when I said da-da-da-da-da? You know how I always, A, B, and C? Do you know how I preached one, two, and three? Can I say that about my ministry? That's a challenge. He stood there with these people, these men, and said, you know how I was amongst you. You know how I preached and taught publicly and from house to house. So he had set an example, and he actually set them and called them to remember the example that he had set. Strong reminder, be careful the example you set because people are watching. The church is watching. Paul, throughout his New Testament writings, called his readers to imitate his example. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he said, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. We develop our godly example by following and practicing his godly example and the godly example of those who came before us. You've heard me mention Uncle Jack I don't know how many times, and I'm not embarrassed or ashamed to mention Uncle Jack. He set a great example. A godly example. I look back and think about the way he handled us young men when we were a bit rowdy. Uh, Literally, he would wrestle us to the ground with a big smile on his face. He could do it as an old man and us younger men. But he loved us and cared for us and looked after us. He set an example that we could follow. Paul says uh, in Philippians 3 verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. We follow Paul's example and we follow those shepherds who themselves follow Paul's example. We evaluate their example through the lens of Scripture and we follow what is good. In Philippians 4 verse 9, Paul says, The things you have learned and received and heard, and seen in me, practice these things. In other words, the example you've seen, follow it. The elder shepherd's example of teaching and conduct is not merely to be seen and evaluated, it is to be heeded and followed. One of my concerns, I mentioned the other night in prayer, is we've become sermon appreciators. We listen to a sermon and think, boy, that could have been done better, or that could have been done worse, or... You know, he sure missed a verse over here. And we, and we can evaluate and we can assess the sermon and we can find all the points on all the good points. And we come away with a perfect understanding of how the sermon should have been or how bad it was or how good it was. And we tuck it in our Bibles and go home and nothing changes. That's a serious concern. Not just for you, but for me too. Is the preaching of the word of God not just appealing to my mind, not just appealing to my emotions, but appealing to my conscience and my will such that I see the scriptures, I see the truth in them, and I conform my life to it. That's the purpose of a sermon, to bring the word of God to bear in all our lives, preacher included, that we all might be changed by it. He says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice them. Put them into work. 
Do what is being said. Church leadership must never, ever come a case of do as I say, not as I do. That's deadly dangerous, both for the church and for the preacher and the pastor and the elders. If you have a problem with a seeming inconsistency in the words and actions of an elder or brother or a sister, then I plead with you with great prayer, great humility, in love for them, go and gently talk to them about it. You might have misunderstood. You might have got it right, and they need to hear it. God be praised for the men who have done that with me, and there have been, and I pray that there will be more. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, which was written to the pastor of the Ephesian church, whose name was Timothy, Paul said this. He said, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. In other words, set an example for the believers in speech. And he wasn't talking about preaching or teaching. He was talking about the words and language and tone. In James 3, verses 1 to 12, James, having said that not many of us should be teachers because of the stricter judgment, he goes right from there to describe the dire need for our tongues, our words, our speech to be controlled. An uncontrolled tongue is as dangerous as a bushfire. How much worse, brothers and sisters, an uncontrolled tongue in an elder or a shepherd's mouth. Deadly dangerous misrepresenting God, misrepresenting Scripture, a bad example, rough shepherding, lording it over the sheep. We're to set an example for godly, controlled speech, words, and tongue. Our speech, Paul says in Colossians 4, verse 6, is to be seasoned with grace as seasoning with salt. Is that what marks our speaking, our tongues, our words? I'm challenging my own heart as I say it. We're to set an example of godly conduct. In Colossians 4, verse 5, Paul says, Our conduct is to be with wisdom. In Philippians 1, verse 27, Paul commands, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Christ's gospel. In 1 Timothy 3, 15, Paul wrote, In case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, the church. In other words, the scriptures are written not just for us to know truth, but to live it out. And Paul is saying to these Ephesian elders, listen, I've given you a great example. Here's how you should conduct yourselves as elders in the ongoing work of the church. And that, exa- that, that message comes to us, but not just to the leadership of the church, to everybody in the church, because we're all involved in shepherding in some form or another. Thirdly, he said, set an example for the believers in our love for them. What did Jesus say? By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have perfect theological knowledge and perfect doctrine in ordered fashion. Isn't that what he said? No, we all know that. He didn't say that. How many of us live it that way, though? How many of us live as if that was what Jesus said? I'm challenging my own heart. He said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What is love? It's sacrifice for the sake, the benefit, and the joy of others. Listen, for God so loved the world that he gave 
his only begotten son. He didn't give chintzingly. He didn't give cheap gift. He gave the greatest gift he could possibly give, his only unique son, to die on a cross in our place that we might be saved. That's love. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ gave his life. He died for us. That's love, brothers and sisters. And that love, that self-sacrificial love, is what we are to display to one another. It's specifically what Paul commanded the Ephesian pastor and elder named Timothy. That's how you are to conduct yourself, Timothy, in the scope and the context of eldership. Love. And again, the Spirit of God just pokes. He said, set an example for the believers of faith in God. Just as Hebrews 11 records the faith of the Old Testament saints as an example for us to follow, and the Gospels and Acts records the faith of the New Testament saints as examples for us to follow, so we, following those examples in our lives, are to set an example for those who follow us. We read their stories. We read what the Bible says about faith, and we do it. We trust the Lord. Having faith, in case you're wondering, is being convinced that God is able to keep all his promises and living under that conviction, trusting in God. You believe God keeps his promises? Amen. I'll try it again. Do you believe that God keeps his promises? Amen. Amen. Of course we believe that. Hallelujah. We, absolutely we believe God keeps his promises. Does it change the way we live? Good. That was the right answer. Okay, now, between you and the Lord, does it change the way you live? Yeah. Maybe some of you have just caught yourselves in a moment and said, I don't know how I can answer that question. That's a great call on you to stop and take some time with the Lord to see whether faith in God has changed the way you live because it must. Paul is calling the elders through Timothy, calling Timothy specifically and calling us through his letter. Listen, show yourselves an example of those who believe by the way you live your life, your conduct, your speech, your love, your faith, your purity. It's all to be an example of what it truly means to love the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are shepherds, and everybody in this room is a shepherd in somebody's life, we set an example of what it means to believe by the way we live. Moving on. To apply this to the elders. uh, Sorry, let me back up. Pastoral shepherding and leadership and ministry is fundamentally example-setting. Mature, godly believers living their lives before the Lord while being watched by those in the church. Eldership and shepherding is being with the sheep so they hear our words, so they see our lives and examples, so they get to know us. I have a great friend down in New Zealand. His name is Russ Honick, and uh, he was a sheep farmer before he went to Bible college over at uh, Grace Seminary and, and became a pastor of a church down there. And he used to say to me, Nelson, you've got to spend so much time like the sheep that you begin to smell like them. Now, in his context, he knew that shepherds that spend time with sheep, they smell like sheep. Sheep look great from a distance. Get close. They don't smell so good. Right? They smell awful, in fact. 
But his point was exactly right. We spend so much time with them that we begin to smell like them. And they spend so much time with us that they recognize our hearts within us. They hear our voices, our words, and recognize that there's love for the sheep in there. And love for the sheep does not mean we always tell them what they want to hear. In fact, it often means we tell them the things that they don't want to hear because we love them, because we want them to grow in their walk with the Lord. For the, for the elders, listen, never forget, we are being watched by two very important parties. God himself, who perfectly sees everything, hearts, thoughts, motives, actions, to whom we will give an account for our ministry for him. If you think that truth doesn't keep me awake at night occasionally, you're wrong. It does. One day I will stand before the Lord and have to give an account of my ministry. What did you do with the sheep that I gave you? Did you love them? Did you care for them? Did you protect them? Did you lead them in ways of righteousness? Or did you just use them for your own benefit and your own advantage? We will. The other one that sees us is the church. The church watches us. The church imperfectly sees only the external. And brothers and brother elders, those who would be elders and shepherds in this church, listen, we may fool the church, but we can never fool God. The church may misjudge us, but God never misjudges us, positively and negatively. Brothers, what sort of examples are we setting for the sheep to follow? To the whole church... This morning, we have all had good, godly examples in our walk with the Lord. I can sit and list off more than Uncle Jack, so many other men that God put in my life to help shepherd me and shape me in my walk with the Lord. And our Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest example of all. We give thanks to the Lord for the godly examples we all had in our Christian lives. But again, the question pops up, are we following their examples? Are we just giving thanks for a good example and a godly life? And in turn, are we setting godly examples for those who come after us? God's shepherds, sorry, God's shepherds shepherd his church by setting godly examples. Elders set godly examples for the church. Husbands and fathers lets us set godly examples for our wives and our children. Wives and mothers set godly examples for your children and friends set godly examples for each other. That's God's call in our lives as Christians. Secondly, shepherds serve the Lord. God's shepherds shepherd by serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verses 18 and 19. He says, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. So why does the titles, the main message of the main idea of the sermon, have this phrase, God's shepherds? The simple reality is we are his under shepherds serving and representing him to the church. And secondly, because God is the one who makes us his shepherds and elders and overseers. By the way, just quick time out. You see in your Bible, uh, elder, pastor, shepherd, bishop, overseer, presbyter, all those different terms that are there. They all mean the same thing. They're all referring to the same role 
a pastor is an elder, elder is a pastor, a pastor is a presbyter, and so on. Bishop, you might go, wait a minute, I thought bishop was like one step above. That didn't happen until much time after the New Testament. When the New Testament was written, a bishop was the same as an elder and a shepherd and a presbyter and so on. They have shades of meaning that are a bit different, but they all are the same role as describing. Having said that, let's move on. First, we serve the Lord, our maker. I don't mean our maker isn't the one who created us like he created all creation. I mean we serve the Lord who specifically makes elders and shepherds. Notice what he says in verse 28. He says, be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. The Spirit has atheto, meaning caused to become or constructed us or set us in place. The one who establishes elders and shepherds in the church is the Holy Spirit, which is a really interesting point, seeing that Paul himself appointed elders, for example, in Acts 14.23 and other places as well. We as a church periodically go through a process of recognizing elders and shepherds. So how does it work? How is it that God makes elders and we recognize them at the same time? How does that go together? Simple reality, by the way. No, move on. So how does it work? How does it God makes elders and we recognize them? Elders and shepherds are to be men who are spirit-filled disciples of Christ. They're men. And I mean that. They are men, not women, because the requirement of an elder is to be the husband of one wife. That's why we believe in male leadership. They're to be men who have extended experience walking with the Lord. They're men living in submission to God unto continual influence of the Holy Spirit. Elders and shepherds are men who are striving constantly to meet the biblical qualifications for eldership in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5. By the way, just a little time out there for a sec too. I've looked at those qualifications. I looked at every single man who stood in the role of an elder or shepherd and gone, not one man that I know who took that role met all those qualifications perfectly all the time. Not one. I know the vast majority of them were striving constantly to meet those qualifications, dealing with sin and mistakes as they came up and they happened, and they do. It's not that we never make mistakes. It's how we deal with them. But it's striving continually to meet those qualifications that are given there. The Spirit of God takes those men whom he desires to be elders, and the Spirit leads them through the experiences and the circumstances that he uses to shape and develop the character qualities necessary for elders and shepherds. There are character qualities necessary. The Spirit teaches them through their own disciplined study of Scripture that was a great story he shared and that hymn. The guy that studied the Bible so much that he literally went blind. All of a sudden, I feel like I got more studying to do. But that's how God works. He works through men who can... <clears throat> don't know where that came from. He works through men who commit themselves to the disciplined study of Scripture. He works to teach them and train them through that. He works through older faithful shepherds who have learned the truth of Scripture and who are now imparting it on to others who come after them. What's Paul tell Timothy in 1 Timothy? 
train up godly men who can carry on the work once you're gone. That's not an exact translation, but you know the verse I'm referring to. Teach others so they can teach beyond. Uncle Jack took young men, put them, brought them over to his house, sat around his, his study table and with our Bibles open, and we learned how to study. We learned the scriptures from him. We learned what it means to be godly from this godly older man. Not just the text he was talking about, but the way in which he lived his life and loved the Lord. The Spirit teaches He leads them through experiences and circumstances. They use to shape and develop those character qualities. The Spirit teaches them through their own discipline, study of Scripture, and through other older faithful shepherds who've learned the truth and now impart it onto others. It is a repeated cycle of elders teaching youngers down through the generations. Look back in your life, Christian, you'll, you'll remember, you'll see that there are other Christians more mature than you that brought you alongside and taught you and trained you. If you don't have someone like that and would like to, come and talk to me. We'll work it out. We'll find someone. Spirit of God makes elders and shepherds of the church. The Holy Spirit, who sees and knows every heart in perfect detail, makes those men into the elders and shepherds and overseers of the church. And we of the church, we cannot see the heart of any man. But we examine the fruit of that man's life and faith and ministry, and we prayerfully discern whether he's been made an elder or shepherd by the Holy Spirit. And having prayed and carefully examined him, we then recognize him publicly as a spirit-made elder and shepherd. We're only recognizing what God is still doing in his life. By the way, if you're an elder or if you're someone who's considering that role, you never, ever stop growing. You never stop learning. You never stop being used by God and God having other people in your life to used to shape you and cut you and form you into the image of Christ. Being an elder, oh, please, never get this idea in your head. Being an elder doesn't mean you've arrived in Christianity. My friend, in a moment of uh, poignant, kind of a comical remark, he said, God put you in their life. There's one of them, and in this case, 150 of you. He put you in their life to help shape them into the image of Christ. And he put 150 of them in your life to, you, to use them to shape you. And if you think about it, who's going to get the most work, you or them? And the answer is, I am. Because there's 150 of you that God is using to shape me. You don't stop growing when you become a shepherd or an elder. It doesn't mean you have arrived We're still learning. We're still struggling through things. We still wrestle with the scriptures. We still learn and understand more as the days go by. If you become an elder, it doesn't stop the moment you become an elder. Let me rephrase that. It must not stop when you become an elder. It's God's work in us to develop the character qualities suited to his purpose for us. And by the way, not every male believer is being made to be an elder or a shepherd. Some of them have different purposes. God has other purposes and other roles in which you to fulfill. It doesn't mean everyone becomes a a formal elder and shepherd in the church, but many are. Many remain informal shepherds and elders. Uncle Jack was never an elder in the church as long as I've known him. But he shepherded sheep constantly. He was always in someone's life, gently bringing the scriptures alongside, praying for them, working alongside with them. 
He shepherded to an incredible degree and never sat in an elders meeting once. The question for us is, are we living in submission and obedience to God so he can do as he desires with us? Are we submitting to his leading through the circumstances required to develop godliness in us? Are we listening to his voice through his word, through his elders and shepherds, to teach the truths that we need to live lives that are pleasing to him? Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, you cannot expect to be used by God when you are not living in submission to God's word. And I can make that statement, and the Spirit of God can point directly to that thing in your life that needs dealing with in regards to submission and obedience. But you can't be used by God while you're not living in submission to his word. Shepherds, we serve the Lord who made us. How do we do that? How do we serve the Lord as shepherds? Not the work, not the individual actions. We'll talk about that next week. But the manner of shepherding. Notice in verses 18 and 19, Paul says, You yourselves know how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. And I would say the first thing we can look at here is we we serve the Lord with submission. Notice what he says in verses 22 and 23. He says, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. We submit to God's work in us to make us shepherds. We continue that submission all through the life and work of being an elder and a shepherd. We never stop learning and growing. We've said that already. Paul set an example through his life and words of his submission to the Holy Spirit. He was bound by the Spirit. What does that mean? It means literally he was restrained and tied to the Spirit. He was held captive to the Spirit's will. He lived in submission to the Holy Spirit all through his Christian life. It's nothing new for Paul nor something he would ever turn aside from. In Acts 16 and verse 6, Paul and company had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak in Asia, and so he stopped. In Acts 16 verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus did not permit Paul and company to go into Bithynia, so he stopped. In Acts 19 and verse 21, Paul purposed in the Spirit, in other words, under the, in submission to the Spirit, to go to Jerusalem. And Paul had already lived a number of years in submission to God. For him to learn by the Holy Spirit's testimony that bonds and afflictions awaited him did not throw him into a tailspin. His past experience of joyfully walking with God gave him the assurance that this next part of his life, including suffering, perhaps ending in death, was not to be feared. What he would lose in suffering and death because of his submission, was nothing compared to what he was going to gain. You all remember the verse, two verses in Philippians 1, 21 and 23. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's no is in the original. It's for for me, to live, Christ. To die, gain. That's how he describes it. He says in verse 23, same chapter, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Paul, 
showed us his heart in Acts 20 and verse 22 as setting an example for the way in which all God's shepherds are to live in serving God, in submission to the Spirit. And while Paul is an excellent example, he's far from perfect of the example of submission. Our Lord Jesus Christ is indeed the greatest, most perfect example. Paul knew with some indefinite, cloudy detail what awaited him. But our Lord Jesus Christ knew with perfect detail exactly what awaited him. And yet he set his face, the Bible says, as a flint, unwavering, unchanging, to go to Jerusalem to suffer rejection by his own people and leaders, brutal torture at the hands of the cruel Roman soldiers, to suffer mockery and humiliation and shame for those who should have protected him, to suffer crucifixion and death to accomplish our salvation. He submitted to his Father's will. Matthew 26 and verse 39, he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Can you pray that? Don't nod too quickly. He knew exactly what was coming his way. Paul had some idea. We can say, yeah, Father, not my will, but as you will. He prayed the second time, my Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. That's submission. And brother elders, for all of us as shepherds in our own sphere, that's one of the attitudes that God calls us to. Not my will, but yours be done. Not what I want, but what you want. And just like Paul, who followed Jesus' example, the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 12 and verse 2 calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down the right hand of the throne of God. That word despising, you know what it means? <clears throat> means to think nothing of. The joy that was set before him of finishing the work, of being welcomed back into heaven as the conquering victor, to come back to earth one day as a conquering king, that was the joy that was set before him. And because of that joy that awaited him, he could despise, he could think little of the shame that was coming, and he could do it for the sake of completing his father's will. We look for our example to our elders and shepherds, to, men, to our mentors and to Paul. But ultimately, brothers and sisters, we look to Christ for the example of what it means to serve the Lord with submission. You say, how do I do that? How do I live my life in submission to God regardless of the future? Number one, we hear God's truth. Through the scriptures we read, through the Christian fellowship we enjoy, through the sermons we listen to, we discern, secondly, and understand the message to us through prayer and the help of the Holy Spirit. We may need to seek help to understand what it means from scripture, from shepherds, from elders, from other brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you understand the message, it all comes down to this. It's just simply a case of will we or will we not submit to the Lord and obey what he calls us to do? We can find all sorts of reasons to squirm around. 
God bless kids. I, I love kids. I really do. But it's amazing when you ask them, so why didn't you clean your room? Well, you know, Dad, I had it all planned out. And they have this great long explanation as to why they had absolute just cause to not obey your parents' commands. How quickly we do the same thing, don't we? We know what God's calling us to do, and all of a sudden, wow, we've got theological reasoning and implications and problems and and texts and verses and chapters and theologians to justify why we're still not obeying what God says to do. But at the end of the day, God isn't going to say, let me hear your your thesis paper and why you didn't obey me. He's just going to say, why didn't you do what I told you to do? We live in submission by hearing the truth by understanding the message, and it comes down to will we or will we not submit to the Lord and obey him. And brothers and sisters in Christ, there is great joy when we obey despite the hardships. Paul was continually rejoicing in the Lord, even when chains, facing death. But there's great sorrow and great sadness and discipline from God when we disobey. We, by God's grace, do not know what awaits our next day, our next week, our next month. It may be, by God's grace, great difficulty, poverty, hardship, long, dark valley to walk through. It may be, by God's grace, great peace, great wealth, great happiness. The question, again, is not what the future holds, because we know who holds the future. The question is, are we willing to live in submission to God, regardless of what that future may be? Christ set the perfect example, submitting to his Father's will to serve him in the church. And Paul set an example of serving the Lord in submission to the Lord, regardless of what waited him. So, brother, elders, and shepherds, are we setting the example for this church? The same example that says, I see what Scripture says, and I do it regardless of what happens. Husbands and fathers, are we setting the example for our wives and our families Submitting and following the Lord regardless of the cost. Wives and moms, same question. Young people, same question again. Because God's shepherds, sorry, God's shepherds shepherd God's church in submission to God. There's no other way. It has to be in submission to God. Thirdly, we serve the Lord with self-denial. Notice in verse 24 what he says. He says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Notice the phrase, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. It means that Paul considered his own life as nothing to be held on to, not valuable, not precious. Paul had obeyed his master's call to deny himself and take up his cross and follow him. Notice his purpose, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord to declare the gospel of the grace of God. In the context of his farewell speech, Paul is stating his future plan in submission to the Spirit of God and in self-denial, which explains why he's going to Jerusalem despite the warnings given about what's awaiting him. The Holy Spirit, through Luke's record of Paul's word, is giving us an example of what self-denial looks like in this Christian life. Self-denial is saying no to self, so we can say yes to Christ. In a way, it's saying no and yes at the very same time. 
It's saying no to self and yes to Christ at the same moment, turning from one to the other. It's every disciple's true and first response to Christ. Jesus said in Luke 9, verses 23 to 25, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And Paul, he began that self-denial lifestyle the moment he was saved, or I should say a couple days afterwards. In Acts 9, verses 20 to 23, after his conversion, he denied himself to quickly begin preaching the gospel, taking up his cross to do so because the Jews immediately sought to kill him for his witness. Paul exemplified self-denial repeatedly throughout his Macedonian and Asian ministry, suffering for the gospel, going to the next town, still bruised from the previous sufferings and continuing to preach the gospel. He had denied himself in practical ways in Ephesus. He says in verse 34, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. He exemplified self-denial for those Ephesian elders watching. But again, Christ is the ultimate and perfect example of self-denial. In Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, what do we read? He emptied himself, veiling his glory. He took the form of a bondservant. He came in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above all names. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brother, elders, and shepherds, Paul's service for God required his self-denial. Christ's service for his Father and his God required his self-denial. And so also our service for the Lord requires our self-denial. It's submitting and saying yes to Scripture over what is convenient or pragmatic. It's submitting and saying yes to the glory of God over our personal wants and desires. It's choosing what benefits the flock and the church above our personal needs and wants. It's choosing to suffer with Christ for the sake of his church, which he purchased with his blood. Husbands and fathers, as you shepherd your wives and family, it will require you to deny yourself your needs and your wants. Serve the Lord in shepherding your wife and your family. Wives and mothers, as you shepherd your your families, it will require the same self-denial. Brothers and sisters in this church, if you seek to love and shepherd those around you, it will require your self-denial to say no to self that you might say yes to God and love and serve one another. The cost is great. Paul knew it, marched outside of Rome sometime, some years after the Bible stops recording his story, head down on a block and a sword blow separated his head from his body and he was immediately present with the Lord. He knew the cost. Paul denied himself with the purpose that he could finish the course and the ministry that the Lord had given him to preach the gospel of the grace of God and he finished it with great reward. Listen to what he says. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. This is 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. 
I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. Isn't it remarkable? He wrote, he spoke to the Ephesian elders about his submission to God, his self-denial for the purpose of finishing the race. At the end of his life, he wrote to the Ephesian pastor, who was Timothy, and said, I've done it. I've finished. I've done what God has called me to do. In verse 8, he says, In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. So also... Our Lord Jesus Christ denied himself to finish the work, and there was indeed great reward. Listen to what the Bible says. In Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3, the Bible says that Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, In Hebrews 1, verses 3 to 4, the Bible says that when he, that's Christ, had made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high, having become as as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And we remember what Paul said in Philippians 2, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Brother and sister in Christ, listen. You in your context have been called by God to love and shepherd those believers around you. Brother elders, in our context, we are as formal elders and shepherds in this church. We've been called to shepherd the church amongst whom God has placed us and God is making us as shepherds and elders. The cost is great. It's submission to God. It's self-denial. It's setting an example for others to follow. It's striving for godliness in everything we do. That they might see our example and respond and follow that example hear our words and see our, work, our works and realize the two line up. But there is tremendous reward if we will obey, if we will submit, if we will follow the Lord, if we will set an example for others to follow. As we come to the Lord's table, I was thinking about how to just to transition the two. And what came to my mind as I was just sitting down there before the service was the Good Shepherd. Take your Bibles, go to the book of John in chapter 10. This is what Jesus says from verse 14 onwards. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep which are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. 
Jesus answered in verse 25. He said, I told you, and you do not believe me. The words I do, works I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life that they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. That's the good shepherd who denied himself, who took up his cross literally and did it all, obeyed perfectly all the way to the end. At the end of his life, the last moments before his, he gave up his spirit to be with God on the cross, he cried out, it's finished. And Paul In similar fashion, the last letter he wrote, within days, if not hours of his death, he said, I've finished the race. They finished it to the end. They shepherded God's sheep. They set examples. They died for the sheep. That's a call on us, brothers and sisters, to come and die for Christ, to come and die for his sheep. When we take that little piece of bread and a little cup of juice and we remember the Lord Jesus Christ, And he's giving himself for us. Brothers and sisters, think about this. He gave his life for me that I might live. And he calls me to give my life that others might also live. No, you do not provide an atonement for someone else. But in sacrificing your life to live in obedience and submission to God, God will work through you to see others saved also and brought to the faith. What an amazing God, an amazing Savior we have. Amen? Amen. Mr. Taylor, would you give thanks for the bread for us, and then we'll distribute it, please.